from UWM. It's Partners for Health, a podcast about health, research, and everything in between. Each episode, you'll hear a conversation from two different health researchers about their passions behind what drives them and how they got to where they are. Partners for Health is an initiative between the College of Health Sciences, the College of Nursing, the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare, and the Joseph J. Zilber School of Public Health, all at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Additional recording facilities are also provided by the UWM Libraries. This podcast was recorded and produced in the good land of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. On behalf of the producers and all the scholars that we feature on this podcast, thanks for tuning in. Hi, welcome to Partners for Health. I'm Carrie Wade, Health Sciences Librarian here at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. I'm your co-producer alongside David Fraser from the Center for Urban Population Health. This episode is a continuation of the conversation between Jenny Stoffel and Melinda Cavanaugh. So if you haven't listened to their first episode, go back in your feed and pay attention to that one first. And if you have the time to, listen to them back to back. It'll make for a wonderful hour of enlightening listening. Just as a reminder of who these two brilliant women are, Dr. Melinda Cavanaugh, licensed social worker, master's of social work, and PhD in social work, is an associate professor at the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare and the Department of Social Work, has authored numerous research papers, and been primary investigator on at least 10 grant-funded initiatives as far as I could count, where she specializes in caregiver health literacy, the cultural implications of caregiving, youth caregivers and young carers, the impact of chronic illness on the family, social work and health care, and she conducts applied research in the U.S. and South Africa with families affected by neurological disorders such as ALS, Huntington's disease, and Alzheimer's. Some of her research results have been used to develop national educational and caregiving materials for families with ALS, and in the Milwaukee community, she has received grants from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's disease research. This project, along with another, partners with the United Community Center, the Alzheimer's Association, and the Medical College of Wisconsin to address family dementia caregivers and the cultural aspects of caregiving. And Melinda is in conversation again with Virginia Ginny Stoffel from the Department of Occupational Science and Technology in the College of Health Sciences, where she is an associate professor. She has been named one of the 100 most influential people in occupational therapy and has been the former president of the American Occupational Therapists Association, where she was serving from 2013 to 2016. Her research focuses on the lived experiences of disability and recovery for persons with mental illness and substance abuse disorders, as well as the experiences of parenting a child with autism, the transitions from military to civilian life as university students, and the engagement in psychosocial clubhouses. 
Her methodologies use motivational interviewing and coping strategies to promote change in substance use and other behavioral changes that reflects an ongoing work with colleagues from the Center for Applied Behavioral Health Research at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She has unique experiences developing research methods that specifically apply to capturing lived experiences through photo voice and other qualitative research methods. I hope you enjoy their continued conversation and the conclusion of this amazing discussion between these two fantastic scholars. And, you know, one of the things I love being able to talk to my students about all the time is just this issue of social justice. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean in the context of healthcare or community or, um, you know, child welfare or, you know, across all of these different kind of groups and populations that we serve, but being able to say, now, wait a minute, where's that advocacy social justice piece? Well, and what's what's interesting, um, so occupational therapy started a little over 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in the 80s and in early 90s, uh, we also have discipline of occupational science. So it's the science yeah. around humans as yeah. occupational beings okay. uh, and that we have a natural inclination towards being engaged in everyday occupations. And depending yeah. on, on what occupations we choose or how we choose to balance those, those influence our overall state of health and well-being. So we've coined a number of, of words that uh, I think very much connect us. So social yeah. justice. Yeah. But we also look at occupational justice, mm. which okay. which I think is is a, a nested within social justice. I would venture to I don't guess. think it's yeah. a separate concept. No. No. But, but it's really about, so if you are uh, now in prison mm-hmm. because of whatever trajectory that got you there, mm-hmm. you you lo- no longer have the opportunity to engage in all sorts of things. Sure. In fact, you, you might not even be able to, um, yeah, having just uh, uh, read a few books where yeah, people talk about that prison experience and where they, they were placed in solitary confinement. Mm. So you, you, are, you have that removed ability to socially participate with other mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. You've removed the ability mm-hmm. to even tend to your own self-care because mm-hmm. you've often been given the kind of the barest elements of, mm-hmm. you know, maybe mm-hmm. a sink with or without running water, with or mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. soap, or even, you know, controlling the temperature of that water. Um, I mean, those are all, all occupational justice issues that yeah. that get in the way of your ability to do something that's productive and meaningful. It may actually be um, just what your nervous system needs to be more calm and able to carry out whatever that consequence is. I think that's so interesting because, you know, even taking a step back, how it is that you got to that place to be in prison in that um, what were the barriers that you ran into or where were you discriminated against or what opportunities were you not allowed so you made different choices, which are, you know, very much kind of subsumed into this larger issue of social justice that there's not, equity and equality and social opportunity for all, that if they then get into this place, prison, mm-hmm. jail, whatever mm-hmm. it is, then they then there's that issue of occupational justice, right. which I think that is so fascinating. Yeah. I'd never really thought about it in those terms. Right. So it's, you know, and what we see is across the world. So the other link that you and I have uh, that we haven't talked about yet is oh, um, South Africa. Yeah. Right. So a year ago this time, I was going to South Africa for my very first 
ever visit. Oh, really? Our World Federation of Occupational Therapists mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. met there last May, and um, and of course was able to be exposed to uh, the occupational therapy uh, researchers and clinicians and community members, mm-hmm. students who were in South Africa ready to welcome, I think there was somewhere between five and 6,000 of us from across the world. Wow. And, um, was it in Cape Town? Or it, was in, it was in Cape Town. Cape and, of Town, course, yeah. we were there during the time where they had very little yes. water. Yes, uh, I was so there we last were very, well. Right. Yes, we, yes, yeah, yes. I took the fastest showers ever. <laughs> you know. um, I was surprised to see that the swimming pools were full because I am a swimmer, so it was nice oh, to be able to yeah. swim. Uh, of course, it was salt water you know, yeah. from the nearby ocean. Uh-huh. But it was fascinating to see the occupational therapists there really work around occupational uh, justice issues in um, communities, for example, uh, where mainly it was grandmothers raising the children mm-hmm. because the moms uh, were off to uh, more urban communities mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. be employed and, and be mm-hmm. able to maybe send back some uh, money to help support mm-hmm. the family. But sometimes more often than not, in, engaged in, in substance use mm-hmm. uh, that move them out of the family mm-hmm. where these grandmothers had to take over and how they were able to come together. And, and so there the OTs were, they were singing with people, they yeah. were doing drumming circles, they were mm-hmm. doing all sorts of intergenerational activities that brought meaning and in some cases entrepreneurial business and some way mm-hmm. to help shape their economy simply through, you know, again, mm-hmm. helping people explore the occupations available to them. Oh, so that's it was so interesting. I, we, we should definitely spend more time talking about, let's just sit here and talk about South Africa for a yeah. while. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it, it would be really interesting to think about the families and the communities that I work with in South Africa from that perspective. So kind of a continuation of my work in neurological disorders, mm-hmm. primarily in ALS, where, you know, in a country, as you know very well, the money that they do have for healthcare is primarily now, after much not paying attention to it over the mm-hmm. years, um, really spend it on HIV/AIDS. Right. But we're seeing such a rise in other disorders, in chronic diseases, in neurological disorders, and they don't receive any attention or right. funds or whatnot. But to your point about that occupational justice mm-hmm. and the assistance in occupation, you know, coming from the very um, social justice perspective as well. You know, how are these families so socially isolated because of a disease that they have no control or no treatment, no cure for? And it creates a tremendous amount of stigma and shame um, because they can't explain how they got it. And, you know, frankly, no one really can explain how they got it. Um, But yet they're unable to walk and talk and they choke. and, And there's all these assumptions about what causes it. But then how does the family understand how to care for that in the context of their own feeling isolated and stigmatized? And it's really interesting to work with colleagues who are living their daily existence in that country. And then for me, coming from the U.S. perspective, um, it is such an extraordinary opportunity to learn and constantly be tweaking how we see things and um, be so responsive to community and culture Mm -hmm. in, in a way that just makes you better as a as a person and as a researcher. But I love the the comments you made because it makes me think, you know, when I go back this summer, um, this will be my fourth year going back. 
what other questions do I need to be asking? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are the other things I need to be paying attention to as a response to my new occupational therapy colleague? Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, and, and, you know, for me, being trained as an occupational therapist, yeah, I look at the person or the uh-huh. group of people, uh-huh. the environment, uh, which, again, the environmental challenges that are that there are very different. The person and and then the third, <laughs> and then the third is the occupations. Okay, yeah. so it really is yeah. the interaction across yeah. those three. Um, yeah. So yes, we very much share. Isn't In that fact, you know how, how much overlap we have. Well, yeah. so if you look at the actual people that started occupational therapy, uh-huh. we had a social worker. Were they all social workers? There was once. <laughs> there is a social worker at the table. I love there it. was an architect. Uh, oh, there that was makes a person sense. who um, who did more of the kind of uh, manual arts. Uh, in terms of education, manual arts education. Is that why there's such a um, kind of a craft kind of, kinda, yeah, exactly, and PM. how you use it. Yeah. But I remember at the time, that's if you wanted something, you made it. Yeah. You, know, <laughs> you didn't no, go to the store wonderful. to buy it. What a great so way to start the, a profession so um, multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. That's right. And then, of course, nursing and, yeah. and medicine. Yeah. Uh, we had both psychiatry as well as people who were early physical medicine rehab kind mm-hmm. of docs. Uh, so when you, when you bring together all those uh, folks, you you really get a sense for so how is yeah do we need to change some aspects of the person or and and, and maybe capitalize on certain strengths the person mm-hmm. has? Do we need to provide that person with aspects of the environment that actually mm-hmm. allow them to do what they want or need to do Absolutely. more effectively? Absolutely. Yeah, it could be assistive technology, it could mm-hmm. be all sorts mm-hmm. of things in today's mm-hmm. world, or do we need to help them think about their occupation and and different ways to carry that out that might match what they're current capacities are so so it's always that person environment occupation piece Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and I know what I love when I go to different parts of the world is to just see how do they carry out all those things who are the people there yeah Mm -hmm. how are they interacting Um, Mm -hmm. what in the environment moves them to come together and Mm -hmm. keeps them yeah across time coming Mm -hmm. together but what are the things they do and Mm -hmm. you know and again as I said the the music the movement the uh, the storytelling, the mm-hmm. um, the um, these grannies um, who have um, have gotten you know the attention of of a number of funders, mm-hmm. who basically say this is working in these you know three or five communities. Let's replicate this across mm-hmm. the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a yeah. Hopefully you can go back and come back and tell me some stories. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, I work with um, I work with colleagues both in Johannesburg and in Cape Town, mm-hmm. and um, we received funding from the ALS Association for a two-year project to really dig into some of the care needs of family members and how to develop um, programming and supports that are really culturally relevant and for us from a very culturally humble perspective, recognizing that whatever it is we know or we think we know may not it all resonate with, um, you know, the children and youth who are tasked with really intensive levels of care, many of whom are unable to go to school because they're providing that constant care for their family member because of the lack of um, services and funding in other ways. So it really kind of falls to that child. So absolutely more food for thought. Uh, well, I think, you know, for me, it was the opening ceremony at our conference where they talked about uh, decolonarity. So, so, uh, so n- ha- encouraging people from all other parts of the world to not come with what's their idea of occupational therapy, but rather 
be humble and learn from um, people in this part of the world as to what that is for them. And so the whole you know, concept of cultural humility is actually something I have a, a, a graduate researcher from the University of Cumbria I'm working with this, these last couple of years, and uh, she and I have been doing workshops on cultural humility. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been one of those things where every time I you know, I read and study and reflect and try to you know, mm-hmm. pull together some ways that we can help people understand about themselves yeah. and, the, and their own um, ability to come to a variety of different groups that are different from them. Uh, so the cultural humility piece has been one that uh, yeah, I feel like the more I know, the less I actually know that I know, yeah, right? Exactly. So, and I think it's something you know. There, we, I don't know. From my perspective, I don't think we do such a good job of the cultural humility piece. You know, we talk a lot of that um, cultural competence, and and I, I'm I'm going to know what to do when I go and serve this community. You know, community X, community Y, and and how they're different from me, and what they may represent, but. But that piece of, of taking a step back and saying, you know, where, where is my power and where is my bias in this situation? And, and what is it that I need to be able to um, step back from and have them be the leaders the and the experts and the ones who know what's going on and not me marching in there. And I think that um, across the board, you know, I'll only speak for, for my profession, but, you know, I think we spend a lot of time and a lot of years talking about cultural competence because that's, that's, that's who we are as social workers. We are always working with a variety of, um, you know, whether it's different or vulnerable or isolated communities, but to add in that culturally humble piece I think is really important and something that um, I think all professions, quite frankly, could could benefit from. No, I fully agree with you. I think uh, for me, even if you think about the word culturally competent, yeah. <laughs> um, basically it's almost like self-actualization. Yeah. Are you ever really there? And if you think you yeah. are... Are you fully competent across <laughs> all of these diverse populations? <laughs> how could you be? Yeah, how could you ever be, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, but, I th- yeah. but that's where, the com- for me, the coming together of like photo voice... I mean, that suggests from the get-go, I don't even know what your stories are. I don't yeah. know what life experiences yeah. you've had. Tell me about them. Exactly. You know, let me learn with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's explore mm-hmm. these together. And so mm-hmm. so the, the experience of working with people using that medium for a decade or more has really allowed me to just say... I'm here to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though I may be the person that wears the hat as the identified professor from the university who, who is mm-hmm. a part of this research team, each of you comes with mm-hmm. you know, a very uh, special set of knowledge and skills that yeah, we're here to have you share that with us. So I, I think of that being very consistent with the spirit, at least, of, yeah. of cultural humility. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, you know, when people often ask about, uh, you know, the research I do and why I do it and, you know, the kind of uh, perspective I take, I think the fact that I'm always focusing on the application of it, it sounds like a lot of what you're saying in the work that you do as well. And I think that's another, to borrow your right. phrase, I think that's another way that we are also um, kind of connected mm-hmm. in that the work we do is translational from, you know, we see things in practice, 
then we ask the research questions and we use that to do interventions. We apply it to programs and services and supports. And I think there's something very powerful about that. And then adding in that cultural humility piece to say, well, if we're going to do this with a variety of different populations, how do they want it done? Right. <laughs> right? right? Or what really matters to you. Exactly. And to let that be exactly. the guide. And you listen to them tell you in the research, well, this is where the gaps are. Mm-hmm. And this is what I need someone to do rather than me saying, well, I'm going to do this. What do you think? Right. <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's exciting to do that kind of research. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. It yeah. is. And, you know, and for me, it's what's sustained me. Yeah, you know, I've been here at UWM, gosh, it's almost 37 years. How many, long, how very many years? Very many years. Right. My, my eldest son was three months old, um, and he'll, he'll soon oh, be 38. Wow. That's so, an extraordinary tenure. What a mark you've yeah, made. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been a fun yeah. fun ride. Well done. Yeah. And have you, you always been in the department you are now? Well, actually, yeah, the college over the years has uh, changed <laughs> kind of what we call different departments. Originally, okay. we had about three or four different academic units in a department of health sciences. Oh, okay. And then there was a time period where we got big enough uh, because we grew from an undergrad program to then um, offer graduate education as well. So then we became a department of occupational therapy. But then about 10 or so years ago, um, I was department chair, um, program director for the OT program. Um, We decided we really wanted to expand who we had, much like the original OT founders. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, let's bring in some people who have background that isn't just in occupational therapy, but helps us answer some of the important questions in environment and occupation Mm -hmm. and assistive technology and so on. So we have a number of of folks from um, engineering. You know, if you're looking at lived environments, both at work and at home, Mm -hmm. uh, human factors, um, industrial engineering, biomechanical engineering. Mm -hmm. So now we're the Department of Occupational Science and Technology. And so we've kind of expanded our scope, um, probably more defining who we are as a faculty and and the research that we do that informs. Uh, We have programs in therapeutic recreation and occupational science. Uh, Occupational studies actually is our undergrad degree and then occupational therapy or master's. We have a totally new OTD, a doctoral post-professional degree that's just starting up this year. And then of course we've been part of the college's PhD in health sciences. And then if the student is part of the occupational science and technology um, staff or faculty, then they're part of our PhD arm of the program. So it's been fun to be part of, you know, really what is a, um, an intersection between uh, occupational therapy and everyday life, mm-hmm. as well as technology, um, and, and, you know, with therapeutic rec. And then we also work across the uh, colleges uh, with the trauma-informed care Program. So the trauma-informed certificate oh, yeah. is They've social work. Social right, work, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. But social work, occupational therapy, nursing, and, mm-hmm. and counseling. So it's been great to have these, you know, multitude of folks come together, much like we do in assistive technology. We've got speech-language mm-hmm. pathology along with exceptional education, mm-hmm. and um, and sometimes even architecture students are drawn to that assistive technology program because they really feel like, you know, if, if the lived environment where people carry out their everyday occupations mm-hmm. is where we need to make some changes mm-hmm. for universal design and inclusivity, mm-hmm. well, that's a, you know, that's a nice crossover as well. 
What a great way of, of bringing in kind of the, the futuristic world in a lot of ways we live in, <laughs> being reliant on so much technology. And um, it, it, I, in, in my work with ALS, uh, you know, so many of the folks who live with ALS are reliant on a variety of different assistive devices. Right. Um, and it's just been really extraordinary for me to be able to learn that and, and learn how important that is and kind of seeing the difference between here in the U.S. It's another difference we see in South Africa is, is the access mm-hmm. to these kinds of speech generating devices and uh, respiratory machines and cough assist that um, folks in lots of other countries don't have Just access no, to. No, Absolutely right. none. So, um, so what a wonderful way that your department's really engaging on those things. Well, thank you. Well, so, so you came to social welfare, uh, um, what, I this is my sixth year here. Right, six yeah, years ago. Yeah. So, and what kind of changes have you seen happening within your college? Well, something that's really interesting about the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare is we are two departments. So we are social work and criminal justice. And before coming in, I thought, well, that's okay. That's kind of quirky. I don't really know how those two departments work. And for a long time, I didn't have a lot of interaction with my fellow faculty in criminal justice. But one of the very best things that has happened to me in the past few years is I've really developed just a wonderful working relationship with our chair of criminal justice, Tina Freiberger. Mm -hmm. And she and I have done a lot of really wonderful work. We're learning from each other. We're learning from the community around the impact of opioid overdose on children and the role that children play in these families. And um, so when you ask me the changes, you know, honestly, we haven't had a lot of changes. I think the change has really been in more collaboration across Mm -hmm. those departments. Um, And so that's been an extraordinary benefit to me um, because I've learned so much about the role of criminal justice. Right. I mean, it's there's a lot of assumptions I think people probably could make, you know, it's maybe it's just one area. But the truth is, um, you know, there's a lot of important role that social work can play in um, criminal justice settings and in organizations. And there are lots of other faculty who do cross work Mm -hmm. across the departments. But our Department of Social Work, uh, you know, we have folks who are studying everything from gerontology, myself, who, you know, I really focus on healthcare and the role that children play as caregivers. We have a lot, um, numerous faculty who really look at the child welfare system, Mm -hmm. um, both foster care, post-foster care adoption, Um, you know, kind of uh, working with families and children who have gone through trauma, who have lived in traumatic environments. And so it's just really, it's, it's a great department to learn from each other. And then the opportunity to kind of learn from criminal justice, which I knew very little about before my work with Tina. And it's just been a, a great fruitful opportunity. Um, But I will say it was something that I do like about UWM is that um, none of our departments are like too massive because then you get to know, uh, you know, faculty across departments, as I have been doing with the interprofessional education workshop. And then also I've been really fortunate with um, getting to know a lot of my colleagues in nursing, Mm -hmm. in the College of Nursing. A lot of my work just really lends itself well to nursing. 
Well, and I think that is one of the things I love about being on this campus is that it's also not too huge uh, yeah. to not be able to get to know faculty in the other places. Exactly. Yeah, I've, I have long before we had our own uh, PhD, nursing had their PhD programs. And so sometimes their students would you know, be working on projects where mm -hmm. they would ask me to come mm -hmm. be part of their committee. So it's been really fun to be able to do that and to see and to watch as social welfare develop their doctorate. Yeah. Uh, you know, some yeah. of some of your students were part of the Center for what was originally the Center for Addiction and Behavioral mm -hmm. Health Research and then was mm -hmm. the Center for Applied Behavioral Health Research. And I was one of the original faculty that was a part of that oh, through wow. through its completion. Yeah. So yeah. we had lots of people kind of come through those programs and, and do some pretty amazing things not just on campus, but mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. bigger picture, you know, out yeah. there in the world. Some really great collaborative work. Yeah. Yeah, it was still here when I um, when I started. Yes. So Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jenny, what, what drives you to do the work that you do? Wow, that's a good question. Across time, I have uh, really found that, that I am a person who responds to opportunities. So I haven't had a specific research trajectory. Um, it's always been influenced by other people around. Um, but of course, you know, 10 years ago, I committed to uh, working with some of my colleagues around this student veteran issue. Mm. Uh, and some of it was personal. We have a uh, we have a son who who uh, was in the Navy and yeah was a freshman in 2001. And so you know his first year um, in Navy ROTC, 9/11 happened, and he stayed um, in for about 13 years, I think. Oh, wow. So watching students come back to our campus, um, some of whom were doing pretty well, but others who were really struggling with that yeah. transition. Uh, several of my OT colleagues were interested and got a few projects going. And, and then as um, Carol Hartline Sells was one of those, and as she moved towards retirement, and um, one of her mentees, Heidi Plock, who I now have worked with for many years, she was she was finishing up her, her graduate studies and wanted to continue the, that work. It was like, okay, well, I can help out with this. Uh, so, uh, so some of it has been influenced by the people and the needs around me. Yeah. And that's really been fun. I think because I've been here so many years, mm -hmm. um, I, I probably can, you know, point out three or four very different kinds of clusters of um, where I focus my time and attention. Oh, um, yeah. But also it was the relationship building piece. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. knowing uh, kind of who's out there, what's the nature of the work they're doing? Is there something I could do that might contribute just a little bit different uh, to what's going on? Mm -hmm. And and so I've been able to find those kind of niches along the way. Uh, nice. So this so this student veteran piece is about uh -huh. 10 years old. Yeah, I'm on the Veterans Advisory Council to the Chancellor. And, and in fact, I, I'm headed to a veteran event after we finish here today. Oh, yeah. uh, and um, and so I, and I imagine, you know, we've just um, had a new piece published in the Journal of Humanistic Psychology. Uh, we're still uh, following up on a number of the, um, of the writing pieces from our five-year grant from the Healthier Wisconsin Partnership Program on uh, using social media as another mm -hmm. way to reach out to um, student veterans and improve veteran mental health. So really, you know, recognizing that there are real needs um, with people that, um, that I've come to know and come to rely on, mm -hmm. uh, that has uh, really been kind of a piece of what drives me. 
Um, and of course, the faculty side of things is really shaping that workforce of the future, uh, shaping them so that they can work in a really effective way interprofessionally, yeah. but also reach into the community and uh, do their work beyond the one-to-one -one or mm -hmm. small group focus, but at the mm -hmm. community and population level, because that's where the profession's going. So it's been fun to be able to see some of those transitions happen across time. Yeah. So let me bounce that one back to you, though. So, so what is it that keeps you kind of motivated and focused to do the work you do? Um, you know, I, I think the thing that I always go back to, I, I said this a little bit earlier, but um, is my practice experience. You know, um, I don't think that anything really prepares you for doing, you know, years of research in a particular area better than having been that practitioner, um, you know, going into people's homes and working with kids and understanding that they're trying to learn how to disinfect their father's feeding tube and they're 10 years old mm -hmm. and not having anybody to talk about it. And, you know, using you as the social worker as the sounding board for that child or that family. And so, you know, I've been incredibly grateful that um, I had that experience because it's it's it drives my passion and it drives, um, you know, sometimes you just get mired down in the administrative stuff or the whatnot, but you have to take a step back and think, okay, who, who, who's the beneficiary here? Mm -hmm. I really do think back to those kids. Um, in addition to um, really the thing that also keeps me going are just communities that I work with. Um, I, again, have been incredibly grateful and very fortunate to work with some really extraordinary disease-based organizations, um, uh, community healthcare organizations that have um, been willing to just really step up and say, oh, wait, that's right. Little kids are caregivers. Mm -hmm. And wait, we're not doing anything for them. How can we, you know, fill in the blank? So I think it's really relying on those practice experiences, those real stories, those real people. And, you know, frankly, being able to do the kind of research that um, I think suits me, but also really suits that practice hat that I still wear, that applied practice, that applied research that lets me still go into the community and go into people's homes and ask them those tough questions, you know, and ask them those difficult things because the outcome is going to be an intervention. And, um, and it's really beautiful to be able to, um, to see that one of the, one of the things that I've been working on for many years is a, a training program for kids who are caregivers. And, you know, sometimes people are like, oh gosh, you're going to, teach them how to do all this care. Well, you know, they're doing all the care tasks anyway, and they're doing it without anyone telling them how to do it. And they are afraid and they're anxious and they think they're going to mess up. And, um, you know, I think I told the story on Friday about a young boy who dropped his grandma because he didn't know how to kind of pick her up and transfer her correctly. And so, you know, having done a, quite a few of the pilot versions of this training. I was just on the phone today with um, some colleagues in Washington, D.C. We're getting ready to do another one in a few weeks. And it's just so exciting because they're so um, they're so engaged and it's a multidisciplinary team. You know, we've got occupational therapists, we've got physical therapists and speech language pathologists and neurologists and social workers and respiratory therapists. And people are so like, 
wow, wait a minute, we're going to spend a whole day with kids and we're going to teach them skills and support and give them all the encouragement possible and and they're going to get something out of it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's the goal. So, um, yeah, I think that's the kind of thing that drives me, um, you know, seeing it in practice and then remembering all those kids that never had a whole lot before. Yep. Yeah. Well, and, and when I think about UWM as an institution and, and mm-hmm. the growth that we've had over these 30-something years I've yeah. been here, what is um, awesome is that not only have we reached the R1 status, but yes. that we have a diverse stream of research uh, where we are doing real-world interventions that mm-hmm. yeah that mm-hmm. yeah we can call translational or yeah. whatever fancy yeah, language yeah, yeah, the researchers really. <laughs> want to give it it's cool stuff but that it actually it actually impacts people in our own neighborhood absolutely today yes um, and and so it's it's very fun to be able to celebrate that oh that's such a great way to put it that really is it is a great way right. yeah and that concludes the conversation between Jenny Stoffel and Melinda Cavanaugh, our partners for Health Featured on these two episodes. Uh, if you didn't believe it, these two women had never met before us putting them in this room before. So that's the magic of Partners for Health, putting scholars together and seeing what happens. I'd like to acknowledge that Partners for Health is produced and recorded on the traditional homelands of the Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee along the Michigami, North America's largest freshwater lake system, where the Milwaukee, Menominee, and Kinnikinick rivers meet, and the peoples of Wisconsin, Sovereign, Anishinaabene, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Oneida, and Mohican nations remain present. We are grateful to live and work here. Partners for Health is a collaborative effort between the College of Health Sciences, the College of Nursing, the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare, and the Joseph J. Zilber School of Public Health, all at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Recording facilities are provided by the UWM Libraries. And of course, another major thank you to my co-producer, David Fraser, without whom these amazing interviews wouldn't be possible. Thank you for being an amazing listener, and we hope you stay tuned for more of these great scholarly conversations.